0: Welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about for and by women in the field. My name is Chelsea Slotin, and I'm your host for this episode. On this episode, we're joined by Dr. Stacy Kozakavich. That's right. <laughs> um, great. Um, but we're going to be talking about her book called The Archaeology of Utopian and Intentional Communities, which is published through the University of Florida Press. Completing the panel today are um, Dr. Sarah Rowe. Uh, Emily Long and Kirsten Lopez, ladies, thank you so much for joining me today. Well, happy
1: me to too. be here.
2: Yes, happy to chat.
0: But Stacey, you just want to give us like a quick intro into like who you are and how you got interested in this
3: topic? Sure, I I can do that. I uh, I'm an archaeologist and historian living in California right now. Uh, I work in CRM with a company called Paleo West, but uh, in Earlier in my career in education, I was a, a grad student at UC Berkeley and a grad student at the University of Saskatchewan in Canada, and I first became interested in the idea of intentional communities when I was working on my master's thesis project in um, at the University of Saskatchewan in Saskatoon, when I was interested in the... Um, the early sort of European agricultural settlement to the area, because I have a family background in that. But whilst kind of seeking out archaeological approaches to that history, I, I came across Dukhobors sites in Saskatchewan, and uh, the Dukhobors were a 19th century Christian sect who immigrated from originally from Russia, but had kind of been been around uh, the, the Transcaucasus region. And they, they came to Western Canada in 1899, fleeing persecution and set up these communal villages. And there are a few dozen of these communal village sites, you know, in different levels of preservation around Saskatchewan. And I just kind of became captivated, captivated by the idea that that these people's history, which was still a living history in Saskatchewan, like there are still Dukabor descendants in lots of parts of the province, um, who had this, this really fascinating history. And... I, I was seeking out a site to study for my master's project, and kind of serendipitously, there was a, a highway twinning project just outside of um, Langham, Saskatchewan, west, sort of northwest of Saskatoon, that was unbeknownst to the archaeologists who, who were doing it until it became clear because a bunch of features were exposed in their uh, in their construction site. They they were oh, building a highway through one of these old Dukabour villages, and so that. That became my my master's project and it was it was really interesting from there and, and I realized that there was this whole world of intentional community throughout North American history and, and world history that archaeologists could take a peek into.
0: That's so cool. Yeah. I, I know in the book that you give um, a couple definitions for intentional and utopian communities. And it, there's some overlap between them, but just quickly for anyone who hasn't read the book yet, and it's a great book. So if you're listening to this, go read it. But can you can you define everybody read it uh, like an intentional or utopian community
3: is? Well, thanks guys. For for those the small handful of archaeologists who really focus on these groups and. Um, historians, sociologists, geographers, architectural historians, you know, there's, there's a wide multidisciplinary swath of people who are interested in these groups. And um, intentional communities has become the the, the term kind of more uh, driven by an anthropologist named Susan Love Brown, and developed in subsequent years by different different people researching the groups. We like intentional better than utopian. Utopian is the kind of popular term that if you say something is a utopian community, people listening kind of know what you're talking about. You know, it's a group of people who envision a better world. They might see, they might do it because there's some kind of situation in the society in which they're living, which is which is just not acceptable to them, whether it's, you know, in, in early 19th century America, there was increasing, you know, urban industrialization. There was um, a lot of, um, upheaval in in the relationship between people and labor and um, families and agriculture. You know, there were a lot of factors leading into drawing groups at that time to religious communities or spiritual communities or different kinds of intellectual communities to try and seek a better path. And an intentional community in that regard is, is a group of people who wants to separate themselves from society at large to try and build what they think is the ideal. And you know, fundamental to that is that you, you can't really build an intentional community inside of the city that you're living in. I mean that's that's activism, that's social change, that's social movements, and all of those have a place in archaeological study. Intentional communities are are a little bit different in that they that they aim to totally set up what I refer to in the book, and this isn't my term, this comes from um, other other scholars. They they aim to set up a society that's institutionally complete it has everything that you need your education systems your infrastructure systems your you know your transportation networks and whatever whatever you need to be able to function as separate from mainstream as possible now it's never possible to actually be separate from mainstream but it's it is it is kind of the goal is to either set up to, to be able to live your values by yourselves, some groups want to set up to set an example for everybody else. And they hope that everybody, you know, jumps on board and decides to live that way. Others just want to be left alone. You know, there's a wide variety within intentional communities of of what the goal is and what the structure is. But the, the kind of overarching commonalities are that they're groups of people that have, you know, multiple families living together away from mainstream society, trying to fulfill all of their Sort of material, intellectual, economic needs as much as they can to them by themselves. Um, Utopian is just a little, you know, it, it's a little specific. Mm-hmm. It's kind of tied to the, um, you know, the Western philosophical notion of utopianism, going back to to Thomas More's original book and and all of the kind of philosophical uh, trajectories that that sprouted off of that, but. It also has with it this kind of association of the term utopian and popular culture, which means, as it did at the time it was initiated, it it, it has an impossibility associated with it. You know, u- utopia was was kind of almost a joke in a way that uh, we can never. You know, it comes with the assumption that we can actually never attain this level of perfection, uh, and it it stands as a critique of society, but it also is you know fundamentally unattainable. So when when most you know, in popular culture, most of the time when you see references to something being utopian, it, it's in a it's in a pejorative sense. It's assuming that somebody is never going to attain the the goal that they have envisioned. And so, you know, that's that's one of the reasons we we kind of shy away from saying that something is a utopian community because these people were making a real effort, and a lot of times from many different philosophical, religious, social, economic perspectives. So.
2: Yes. Oh, definitely. I like that you you mentioned popular culture because I've been um, binging The Good Place, right? Oh, and yeah, yeah. like, it finally hit me when I was reading back through things of how clever the title is, right? Because it's both it's both the good place, but it's also the non-existent place <laughs> that they're at. Like, yeah, it's not what it is. So, uh, bravo for that little you know brain <laughs> brain trigger there. <laughs>
3: Yeah. And and, and and so far I haven't come across any community that relied heavily on frozen yogurt, but you know
1: <laughs> there makes, might be so one happy. still.
3: Yeah, yes. And well I was curious then, so when we're looking at
1: these communities, would you say there are actually any surviving kind of communities today that are still practicing this kind of idea of intentional communities?
3: Yeah, there are. Um there's if you look in the kind of there are new movements about um, that that kind of focus on uh, ecological environmental issues, which are relatively recent phenomena, uh, eco-villages in different parts of North America and elsewhere in the world, which mm-hmm. are um, some of them kind of dovetailing up with earlier experiments like the farm in Tennessee. These sort of back to the land movements mm-hmm. that have refashioned themselves in a way to to be increasingly relevant to later generations of of seekers of intentional community. And um, there are, you know, some people lump um, co-housing movements with intentional community, and that's, you know, they're definitely part of the kind of dialogue about community building. Um, They tend not to be as institutionally complete. There are also religious communities within, um, you know, growing up in uh, Saskatchewan, we were very aware always of the hutterites who are um Mm -hmm. a a german-speaking religious community who live separately and very differently from other agricultural neighbors around them in the the sort of the northern you know plains united states and in uh, uh, saskatchewan and alberta so Mm -hmm. there are some groups that still that definitely exist um you know we we tend to be Mm -hmm. quite familiar with the the burnout, you know, the the kind of fabulous burnout of some of these communities, like um, like Oneida, who whose whose leader had to flee the country because of his unorthodox views about marriage and sexuality, um, <laughs> there, and, and or the kind of the slow the slow dissipation, like like the Shakers, who just stopped being able to to really recruit and maintain their villages after you know more than a century of of success um but it's it's an ongoing it's an ongoing effort in different ways and you know every every intentional community responds to the time that it comes out of so that you know there aren't going to be any new brook farms there aren't going to be any new oneidas because those were typical to you know the first half of the 19th century mm-hmm. what we have now are ones responding to today's conditions and today's needs yeah okay
0: no i did think it was really interesting um you quoted someone and i unfortunately uh, can't remember who in the book by stating that these intentional communities are sometimes considered failures for ending even the shakers who had you know a century of success but that we maybe need to readjust our definition of failure because even if the community isn't still around if people are still talking about them and still debating so the ideas that they put forward. Um, you know, is that what they were trying to succeed at? Which
3: I thought was really right. interesting.
0: So uh, even those that have ended and, are and, still having an impact.
3: They are, yeah. And whether or not it's... Whether or not it's intentional, um, you know, this kind of there, there's a couple of things happening here. One of them is uh, that for any intentional community or for any social movement, the community structure may work at one point in the incarnation of that movement, but it might develop such that it's it's not the best way to convey whatever statement, whether it's a social or an economic or religious statement that a group is trying to make. The communal structure might not be the w- best way for that to work, um, and this this is. You know following off on um, the idea of a scholar of intentional communities named Donald Pitzer who who coined the idea of developmental commun- communalism where sometimes communalism is a structure that works and sometimes an organization gets together develops a uh, um, an intentional community and then that works for a while because that's what they need economically to get off the ground but then ultimately it's not what they need to kind of to continue the movement overall um, there are there are huge sort of worldwide movements that have had kind of communal episodes in their history that are still really strong movements but you know at times went through that that process um, and came out of it still highly influential um, both in Mennonite religion the latter-day Saints Church have had you know varying degrees of communality in their history uh, but continue to be relevant to their followers without that um, but that was part of their their building process in certain geographic areas. So there's there's that side of it where a movement can be consistent in its values but not needing necessarily to maintain a separate community. And the Duke of Bor- faith was, was in some ways the same. There are still descendants of Dukobors in Western Canada and parts of the United States, You know, lots in British Columbia, lots in Saskatchewan, who see themselves as embracing Dukobor values. Um, communalism is what they needed at the time that they immigrated to Canada to basically make it economically and to and to keep their families intact and to be able to support themselves. Um, and it also supported their idea of egalitarianism, which was fundamental to their faith. And other aspects of their faith, including nonviolence, vegetation, um, vegetarianism have kind of gone through different levels of um, of importance and significance. The ones that they've held on to most, uh, most strongly are the nonviolence and the way that the faith is practiced in a fairly egalitarian way within the church, that there isn't a, a real formal church structure, there isn't an official clergy or, you know, uh, a really highly institutionalized church building. And those are all things that were, that were, you know, fostered and nurtured within a community environment, but didn't necessarily need to exist solely within that kind of environment, so there's there's these kind of groups that definitely have they find it useful and it helps, but it isn't it isn't absolutely necessary. Um, there are also influences coming from intentional communities where the community, like a specific community itself, might dissolve and dissipate. You know, it might not have had enough actual you know cohesiveness of thought to begin with, um, but the members of that community might move on to other communities. Um, they might move on to, to other social mm-hmm. movements that are aligned with what their community stood for in the first place, like the Cahuilla Commonwealth folks, they were also labor activists, a lot of them um, one of the
1: And I thought that was such a cool passage in the book how it's like a response to the labor, like the 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 cruelties against labor forces in San Francisco mm. and I was like, whoa, that's really cool, that, yeah. that kind of came about with that, providing like safe Working conditions
3: and whatnot, but they also show a really, really dark side of that labor movement yeah. as well. In that they were fundamentally really racist. Um, they that were they were a strong part of the. <laughs> and you, you gotta you you gotta take the bitter with the sweet with these with these oh, communities. When I mean anybody we study in the past, we have to expect them to be human. And yeah. we there there were times working on my dissertation research that I just did not like these people, but they had a story to tell. Yeah. <laughs> so, Were
1: there any group that you particularly like? I like this group
4: best.
3: <laughs> um, it's it's more individuals. I have a really soft spot for the the wife of the uh, one of the founders of the Kewa Colony. Uh, this woman named Annie Haskell, who you know just she lived through a time in California's history. You know, starting with the the gold rush. You know, being born not too long after the gold rush and, and living through the San Francisco earthquake and, you know, the women's suffrage movement. And she was just a really, an interesting person and she wrote a lot. And so, you know, reading her words and seeing, you know, her humanity and her involvement in that part of Western American history is really fascinating. And so, um, and so she's, she's, she's kind of interesting. Um, I can't say there's, I have a favorite group. <laughs> they, they all have There's
1: their... a one that just comes out on
3: top. It's like, yeah, shakers. <laughs> I've, if I felt that way, I probably would have joined one of them, but I haven't yet. <laughs> Try to revive the Icarian movement or something. I don't know. <laughs>
2: yeah. I mean, I think it's a really interesting, throughout the book, it's, you can see how, people are the tension right between the ideals that the communities have and then the practices of the people who in many cases are coming from the broader social context into this new new environment and trying to adapt or trying to follow or trying to retain um the you know the the case study that you have in california in particular, like this egalitarian ethos, this socialism, but still encouraging or allowing private property. And so the amassing or maintenance of wealth by some families and the poor conditions of others really reflecting the world that's around them. Right. Yeah. And and that tension being maybe in part what causes the experiment to to fail as a as a a sighted community
3: right and this is you know this is one of the values of approaching these groups archaeologically is being able to try and figure out and it doesn't always just mean looking at you know what's what's in the dirt because some of these communities like the kahuia colony for example they didn't leave a whole lot behind um but looking archaeologically at something Means looking at their spaces, looking at the material culture that they used on a day to day basis, how they structured their environment, um, and you can see the different levels of community that that were actually being practiced, you know, on the ground in these in these different settlements, which which can be very different from what was written about the communities. You know, you have a documented history. A lot of these groups were were really prolific publishers. Like they they wrote newspapers promoting themselves. They wrote books promoting themselves. They they had a lot to say, but what they said was very promotional usually. Then you had neighbors who were writing newspaper articles about these groups and saying, you know, these weirdos are are kidnapping families and taking yeah. children away and, and they're terrible and they're a threat to our society. And so you get some really different perspectives on communities from the written record, from the documentary record. Um, oh, I'm sure. And a lot of those are either kind of, you know, a couple mm-hmm. of individuals who might be publishing from within the community who are speaking for the whole community, but might not be representing what's really going on in the community at all. And so taking an archaeological perspective, looking at all these different levels of activity and involvement, really, really kind of helps you get a fuller picture of, you know, where these folks were coming from. You know, we had it at the Kawia colony, there were families who were the The families of you know fairly affluent lawyers coming out there, they didn't, they weren't giving up their whole lives to go join this community. They still had you know property back in the Bay Area. They moved a bunch of furniture and lived in a tent, and it was kind of a nice um, you know a, a diversion for them in some ways. Uh, but within that same community, you had individuals and families who had who who didn't have anything. <laughs> they they gave up all they had. They moved away from their homes. They took a humongous risk in joining this group, and. So they had a lot more to lose, and here they were in a situation where their investment was a lot different from some of their neighbors. And so it was right. in that particular circumstance was never a truly egalitarian situation. Mm-hmm. You know, it it they, they didn't have to sign over all of their property, like in in other in other communities, you you pretty much had to um, give up your personal wealth to the community upon joining. This was not a requirement in the Cahuilla Colony. So when we come back, we will continue having this conversation.
1: During this break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology blog and see the types of posts we've been putting up over the last two years. We have been discussing many different types of topics from surveys that have been done in the field on what archaeologists are experiencing all the way to just random subjects that interest us at this time. You can also see the backlog of episodes and it's also a way you can contact us about your interest in the episode and any topics you would like us to cover sometime. Again, thanks for listening. Hi and
0: welcome back to the Archaeology Podcast. On today's episode, we've been joined by Stacey Kozakavich to talk about her book, The Archaeology of Utopian and Intentional Communities. Before we went to break, Kirsten Lopez, you were about to have a a comment um, (laughs) on the previous conversation. Do you want to jump in with that?
4: Yeah, so I had a couple of things. As I was reading this, I realized that the community in Aurora, the first on, it looked like the first on the West Coast, is actually, I pass it on my daily commute, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and I didn't even realize it was there as far as what it was. Um, It's just a historic district. You know, I see a sign off the freeway. But I thought it was a kind of a neat little thing, and it made me think a little bit more about some of the other communities that are sort of in the local mythos some of them come in the the later like in the 60s 70s which is a period you mentioned in here that has some of the most uh, intentional communities have kind of landed it's a lot of them are on the west coast
2: Uh they're
4: very back to the land um so you had like a lot of the communities that landed in southern oregon there's actually a community in Wolf Creek, Oregon, in Southern Oregon, uh, that is still going since the '60s, um, and that's a little. The 1960s. Yes, 1960s. Sorry. <laughs> oh no worries. Um, so that's kind of fun. Um, and then one of the more infamous, and I wanted to get your opinion because you, you, Stacy, divided out um, like company towns and. Uh, sort of a, what seemed to be a degree of insularity um, right. in defining the utopian and/or intentional communities. Yeah. So there are two in the northwest here. One is um, here in Portland. We had the Rajneesh community.
3: Uh-huh. I oh, was yeah, gonna ask <laughs> the Netflix, the Wild Wild yeah. yeah, I'm, I'm watching that too. <laughs> yes.
4: So that's a a whole, I mean, it was very much a religious insular community that ended up not only lashing out at the outer community or mainstream community, uh, but took a lot of bizarre political action and tried to change the mainstream society at large from Mm -hmm. within their little bubble. Um, So I wonder how they fit in your definition, just to get a clearer picture of of how some of these communities that seem to straddle that,
3: right? Yeah, fit in, and that's—I mean—they're a good example of um, it was you know a social and religious movement for whom separating um, increasingly from from the surrounding society and yet trying to set up their own economic support while using the the kind of you know the the bigger economic infrastructure outside, whether they're you know producing something within and they're selling it outside like the Shakers did, or they're they're running other businesses to try and support themselves, um, that's, I mean, they're absolutely an intentional community, um, especially in in the Oregon instantiation of their, of their group. Yeah.
4: Um, (laughs) And the other one that I had in mind kind of sits more in the company or corporate town, which is Hanford. That was in Washington and that's a Manhattan project company town, sort of, I guess, government established community that built Uh, nuclear warheads during World War II. Um, So that is a current, uh, it has been established as a national historic Historic district and it's under the parks management, um, NPS management Mm -hmm. uh, now. And I wasn't sure because it's not necessarily a company, but it definitely fits some of the company definition that's laid down in here in that it's, the ideal the way that that the the community is built is like the goal is more akin to like a company town or institution to where you have everything is to the extreme ideal of the
3: outside um, mainstream community absolutely yeah that communities like that are and i mean that's an interesting one certainly because it had to be for for the security of the people working there and and neighbors and what they were actually working on, it needed to be fairly isolated. Um, mm-hmm. But, and it was, you know, it, they tried for institutional completeness, you know, they had their own school systems, but in in a lot of ways, so is a military base. Um, but yeah. that, is, that is developed to support the mainstream. It is absolutely uh, aligned with, in the same way that a company town, um, you know, like Feltville or, you know, any of these company towns that archaeologists have studied, are even if they're even if they're established by you know what we might see as being a benevolent capitalist who had nice ideas about having everybody living in a certain up to a certain standard, um, or a certain kind of egalitarianism, or availability of resources, um, those those are supporting uh, a mainstream structure, and so yeah. and, and the people that are there are there at the will of their employer. Um, they're, they're choosing maybe not, they're not choosing the community based on its fundamental values and what it offers, which is an alternative. It's not a critique of society. It's not an alternative to society at large. Yeah. It is, it is an offshoot, which is, which is supporting, um, you know, some, some fundamental mainstream value. So, uh, you know, th- those, those are a distinction that are, are really interesting phenomena, um, yeah. but not, not quite into, you know, it's it's like, how big are you gonna make your tent for intentional community? And I think the cutoff oh, yeah, really yeah. is this sort of, um, it's it's either a rejection or a critique or a separation from mm. whatever mainstream they're coming from. It, that has to be there. Um, mm-hmm. and, and if it isn't, it's, you know, still worthy of historical archeological mm. study, but it just doesn't maybe fit into this particular category. Awesome. Cool.
1: And out of curiosity, so when you're looking at these communities, how do, How are you looking at it in terms of the archaeological records? We know you're looking at documents to try to get a history of the place and mm-hmm. why people were creating these places. but when you're looking just at the cultural material itself,
3: what kinds of things are you looking for so it it kind of depends on on you know how what you have available as a resource. Um, a lot of these communities took up quite a bit of space and you know there isn't necessarily a lot left of them and so it's very hard archaeologically to look at the whole remains of an archaeological or of of an intentional community for a comparative sample you know something like something like the yano del rio cooperative which is out in east of los angeles in southern california is special and unique in that that is an area that hasn't been intensively developed and so you can look at you know as as um that Van Buren and, and his his other um, colleagues did, you can look at a lot of different areas of that community to, to try and get a comparison of how, you know, families were living in relation to each other, how they were provisioning themselves, and you can get a bigger view of it. Now, a lot of times these communities we, we, we can't necessarily see, um, you know, ideally what you might want to do is say a group is is trying to set themselves up as egalitarian, and if you can look at material culture from different households, you might be able to see if if people have the same kinds of products available to them. Um, because of the, the the time period of a lot of these groups, they're they're within you know they're still participating in in a North American market economy, and so they have consumer goods that we see in sites that aren't intentional community sites. You know, we see the same kind of um, you know ceramics, we see household glass, we see, you know, hardware, and, and a lot of the same kind of stuff that neighboring families would have. And so what what we're looking for is, is what is the composition of the assemblage at one of these at one of these sites? Does it reflect a group access to things? Do do different families have different kinds of things? Do they have different values of things or amounts of things? Um, Mm -hmm. Are they all eating the same things? Are they sharing the same, um, you know, are, are, are they if they eat meat? Are they, you know, sharing butchering? You know, what kind of, you know, what is their structure of of resource procurement, of resource sharing, of you know, feeding themselves, of provisioning their households? Um, and so it's in in a lot of ways, it's not that much different from looking at other historical archaeological sites and trying to compare, you know, social and economic structures based on the material that we see. We you can also look at, you know, how are how are the communal structures if there are communal structures because not every intentional Community has economic communalism. That's that's a, not a necessity. But how is their communal identity or community identity uh, manifested in their material culture? You know, are they, do they have common garbage disposal? Are people, you know, throwing away some things in the in the group in the group garbage pile and hiding some things in the privy out back? You know, these very same kinds of um, historical archaeological questions that we that we can ask in. In, in many different circumstances um, but what the answers mean is really specific to knowing what these people were trying to do and and so that that's kind of one level of it and and this is you know something that I ran up with against with the Duke of which they have a certain historical um, you know there's a certain historical understanding of what their values were when they were settling in Saskatchewan um, and a couple of those values that are maintained in until today by a lot of their descendants is that they were primarily vegetarians and that they were abstainers from alcohol and tobacco. You know, the archaeological record didn't really support that statement about them. Oh. No. But that does not. And, and, and then you get into having to have, you know, a, a conversation with descendant communities, with other scholarly communities about what they actually were doing versus what the written record says they were supposed to be doing. What their descendant communities say that they were supposed to be doing, and for the people living on the ground at that time, what it meant to them to be a duke of war. You know, they weren't mm-hmm. they weren't acting out against their faith by eating meat. They weren't acting out against their faith by you know potentially some of them drinking alcohol. Um, they were bringing with them traditions from where they had lived previously. They were using the resources available to them, but were they still practicing their faith? Were they still fundamentally nonviolent, past and economically communal. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so it really opens up the possibility for conversation as opposed to saying, look, they were not the Duke of Wars we thought they were. You know, <laughs> that's not the goal of, of the yeah. exercise. It's to say, well, what did it actually mean in nineteen oh five at this particular place and time to to be a Duke of War, And what did they have available to them? And what choices did they have to make? You know, what what well, were the important things?
4: And I can imagine this also brings out a little bit of the humanity of it. I mean, you know, a past that's so idolized or it becomes sort of an institution, whereas you kind of lose a little bit of like what it was to struggle with that settlement and, you know, habits that they may have meant to give up um, that maybe they struggled with, you know, on an individual level. You know, there's, there's always those remains of, you know, something happened. You know, Johnny decided to get a drink or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not saying that's what happened, but these they had right. these intentions obviously, and they they were striving to live up to them. But that doesn't always go as well as the really fabulous discussion on the Llano del Rio mm-hmm. um, it, <laughs> conundrum in their uh, architecture or lack of landscape planning. Yeah. Or tr-
3: Yeah, they couldn't well and that's that's the you know, another (laughs) another archaeological approach is to look at how they how different groups structured themselves on the landscape and what Mm -hmm. that might have left behind. You see from the, the Llano del Rio example that they they didn't necessarily have a cohesive plan and they also didn't necessarily have the economic capability to realize a plan that they did put in place, which was a really common occurrence in intentional communities um yeah. being able to actually build what you envisioned you know none of the Fourierist um phalanxes in the the United States could actually accomplish what um <laughs> what what the kind of Fourierist principle set out with thousands mm-hmm. of people living in these you know communal dwellings they just didn't have the the density of membership and so um that that's kind of where where you start seeing that that stereotypical approach to you know calling these people utopian. Like they had a vision of what they were going to build from a city planning perspective. And it was really hard because mm-hmm. <laughs> it was yeah. it was very expensive and and there were always you know there's always something happening that, that got in the way of their vision. What we can look at from a landscape perspective is what what did get built, what was important. Um, yeah. Whether it was a leader's garden, as in the case of the harmonists, um, and that that's it's not only what's built, but what's also what's preserved as well. Mm-hmm. For so, the sake of the list, what what would
1: be the leader's garden? What would you be looking at?
3: In the leader's garden? In that case, you know, why is that important? What does that say to the community? What does that say about the community? Um, are they putting exotic plants in it? I mean, the um, the Harmonist Gardens, folks studying those now are looking at how, how those reflect or embody different traditional, either biblical principles or sort of German cultural principles, or are you looking at, in certain circumstances, an economic garden? Are you looking at exoticism embraced? You know, what you see in in these kind of landscape studies is, is you know, what what was this trying to convey to people? Mm-hmm. You know, there, is, is it an ornamental garden or a vineyard? It, a lot of these kinds of questions, they, again, kind of like the, the smaller material culture that you would ask outside of... Um, Intentional communities are mm-hmm. are applicable as well, and you just need to ha- to be kind of in dialogue with the documentary record. You know what what was the goal? That's so cool. And just
1: as one of your examples in the book of um, Pleasant Hill, one of the Shaker villages, uh, what's cool is I got to visit there when I was a child, and looking back, you can really see the careful construction they made of the landscape in terms of how the buildings looked, how the paths were um, connecting the different buildings and how that area was like carefully put back together in a way to kind of reflect the Shaker lifestyle for teaching. But it's just, I can imagine at that time it must've looked really impressive and clean cut Mm. and uniform and like really show a unique way of using the landscape that a lot of other uh, communities were not.
3: So it makes it kind of yeah. like
1: ooh I'd
3: like to live there. <laughs> it's it helped, you know, it helped structure people's lives if um and and the shakers were, were were maybe not unique but definitely extreme in their in their way of approaching how to build your village, you know, they were there was kind of a formulaic principle about how to structure each village based on where to put the 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 kind of central families' uh, houses and workplaces and then the more peripheral families and the Mm -hmm. the kind of stages of membership and commitment where you were located within a shaker village reflected how invested you were in the community, um, both economically and religiously. Um, And, you know, they're written into their, their documentary record of, you know, how, how the sort of central shaker authority envisioned building these villages were things like, you know, don't, don't have random paths going all over the place. You know, don't, don't have, um, throw your garbage out the front door, you know, keep, it was, it was, it was very specifically planned to maintain a level of order in Mm -hmm. their daily lives. And that was, that was from what we see mostly maintained pretty solidly. And, and because there were, there were regional differences in what buildings looked like and regional differences Mm -hmm. in, in how the landscapes themselves were formed. Every Shaker village was different. Mm -hmm. You know, there were, but but they, they kind of followed a pattern, um, in, in the same way, I, I kind of if you visited the Amana colonies, those are also a, a really interesting landscape in that there are these you know very uniform brick dwellings facing a main street, which give uh, an appearance of you know kind of real regularity and uniformity. Um, but then these kind of interconnected back lots and pathways behind them, where people were actually living their lives. Hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, and that's that's a like kind of an interesting point about how much you can actually regulate how people are living their lives to be uniform to so, so kind of exist in these intentional ways and follow the partic- particular guidelines that are prescribed
3: and and not every community required required a level of uniformity. Sure. um you know, ones like you yeah, el del Rio, like Cahuilla, the um the secular ones tended to, and this is you know, it's, it's hard to make generalizations, but not every intentional community required the kind of level of uniformity yeah. that shakerism did. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're kind of famous for that.
0: <laughs> they're kind of intense. Um, they are. Yeah. yeah. Um, and on
3: the
0: note that the shakers were
1: kind of intense. Uh, we awesome. We've
0: reached the end of our second segment, and we'll be back after the break.
1: During the break, why not check out the Women in Archaeology Patreon account. And there you can learn how to support the Women in Archaeology podcast and blog, and check out some of the blog posts we've been posting. You can see the different ways to become a patron of the Women in Archaeology, from $2 to $5 to $10, or even just showing your support and interest is always great
0: back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. On this episode, we've been joined by Dr. Stacey Kozakavich to talk about her book, The Archaeology of Utopian and Intentional Communities. So far, we've been talking a little bit about specific communities and how you recognize an intentional community in the archaeological record uh, and the historical record. But in this last segment, we're going to move into um, a little bit of like why you should care, why it's relevant today. So I know some questions came up over the break. So I'm going to open up the floor to whoever is desperately um, dying to have their question answered.
2: Well, I just wanted to, I wanted to chime in. Sorry. Um, so I'm coming from a not historical archaeology background, and I am actually looking at um, a community that's 4,000 years old, uh, or existed 4,000 years ago. And Finding some of these similar patterns, this multi-scalar approach, but of course, I don't have the nice documentary evidence of them saying, "Yes, we are moving off and living in our own way and um, trying to, to do things differently." We talked a little bit about how you can look at an intentional community in the absence of some of those documents, but I guess I, I wondered if you could speak a bit to, you know, how much of it is like. A Western ph- phenomenon. I mean, obviously, there's ashrams, in India, and things like that that are also groups that intentionally live apart. Um, but I just in your in your work, if you've come across other movements that are in very different cultural contexts or in other places globally, um, so i so wondered if you could contribute that.
3: And that's that's an an excellent question, and, and this is where I just have to admit that the limits of my own sort of scholarship so far is that I've focused on. You know, North American, um, fundamentally Western um, communities, and it is it is a critique of sort of you know broader archaeological publications, and it's a fair one that you know my book and um, a historical archaeology uh, volume that we put out you know over a decade ago now um, do focus on North Americanism, um, and there there is. There are broader movements, but the ones that I know about tend to be, you know, there's there's a, a history of intentional community and and communalism in Australia. Um, there is in different parts of the United Kingdom. Um, some of the the movements that were were central to the the early intentional communities in. Um, in North America were European in origin. You know, there was the French Acadians and the Fourierists. There were uh, a lot of German Anabaptists and German Pietists who set up communities. Um, and, and there's the Shakers again, that, well, they grew in, um, in the United States, their origin was, was in England. And so there, there's definitely a Western focus. It's not, I focus on, um, North Americanism just because this is where I am and there's only so much that I can do in in the hours of the day. Fair enough. and, (laughs) And yet at the same time, you know, groups like the Moravians, you know, kind of Western based groups like Moravians and Mennonites have expanded well across the globe into south american countries into asian countries and you know outside of european contexts and western contexts and so uh it's there and so anybody that's really inspired by looking at that also by you know looking at at the fluorescence of intentional community in completely different non-western um modern cultural context yeah. that's i invite them to do so i encourage them to do so and i would love to read what they find because it's just outside of my breath right now um it's you know i i think that what we've found is is that the the growth of intentional community is kind of, it is, it is a part of growing Western modernity, and so you know we see these kind of reactions to society and industrialism and increasing urbanization, um, and critiques of of those patterns in Western society, um, and so it's sometimes hard to to transfer. Um, what we understand about intentional community, back to like a four thousand year old, you know, community who's, you know we don't have literature from. Yes. Because what does that mean to be community? Was that was that mainstream, or was it not? And it can be really hard to tell. You need you need a lot of context to be able to understand if somebody was trying to do something different and mm-hmm. what exactly that was.
1: That's really cool. But you
3: can. You can still approach mm-hmm. some of the same archaeological questions, though, about how, you know, from right down to how, how were people orienting their homes? You know, how many people lived in a house? Were they facing each other? Were they all the same? Um, you know, all of these questions of social status differentiation.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Mm-hmm. Um, we, you know, are connection
2: to external groups, mm-hmm. trade items. Mm-hmm. That's
3: yeah. right. Yeah. And connection to external groups was it's a common thread in intentional communities. Um, you know, there was, there was always going to be a flow of, of goods and resources in and out of these communities, uh, because just by necessity, you could only be so self-sufficient when most of your population is, is already based in, you know, are, are originating in modernizing Western context where there's increasing reliance on commercially produced goods and the, a lack of ability to produce everything that you mm-hmm. need from within your own ranks, whether it's because you haven't recruited all of the different trades that you need, or because you know certain items that you've become accustomed to in your daily lives really just cannot be produced at uh, a lower than industrial scale. So there is always this, you know, back and forth in the communities that I've looked at between modern economies and, you know, internal usage and changing the meanings mm-hmm. of goods as they came into communities.
1: That's really fascinating. Um, I know personally. For me, so my my big passion is public education, archaeology, and trying to get archaeology out there um, as much as possible. And so, from your perspective, why should people know <laughs> and understand these communities? Like, what makes them important to American history? And should they go visit I, these places?
3: That kind I, of. Stuff. I think they. I think they should visit these places. I think that we should read about these places and know about these places because. The more you dig into looking at intentional communities, the more you just keep learning how many of them there are. You know, there are like you were mentioning them. i forget which one of you was mentioning the, the Oregon communities. Yeah, Kirsten. Yeah. Oh, perfect. Um, <laughs> there, there are so many. Um, you know, have you have you read Eden Within Eden? I have not. Okay, so it's a book by uh, James Cop. Who um, who looked at you know it's a volume of Oregon's intentional mm-hmm. intentional communities. It's, yes, seek it out, and and what you find is that there there are all of these communities across North America, um, large and small, and it it leads you to the necessary conclusion that there have always been alternatives. There have always been people who are trying to change the mainstream, and that in in modern culture, it's very easy to kind of look nostalgically back at, at what we might think of as simpler times, uh, mm-hmm. times that were more cohesive, where the family unit was was solid, um, and, and try and, and make assumptions about our current state based on, um, you know, judging ourselves based on a standard that maybe never really existed. And so we have to understand that there have always been people critical of society and trying to make mm-hmm. other alternatives viable, and some of those have actually formed the, the, the society that we live in now, you know, the, um, the influence of both mainstream, you know, kind of on the ground labor activists, as well as these, you know, communities who, who were, were kind of offshoots who tried to, to set up a new pattern. Um, they have influenced the way that we have structured our expectations of fair labor practices today. Um, you know, we, we owe a debt to people who were radicals. Mm-hmm. and. And so history is not without radicals who were influential. And so that forces us not only to consider the views of others today that we might find challenging, but also to recognize that those views might have influence on our future and you know to try and, and understand better how modern protest movements, modern um, um, alternative communities might kind of then reflect back in our own future structure so I think it's it's important to recognize that complexity mm-hmm. of, of social economic religious history and but not necessarily be you know too rosy about it Some of these communities had mm-hmm. horrible views that we would never want to espouse today mm-hmm. um, and yeah. so you know just as many of them are kind of cautionary tales there was a, a, a little community um, in mentioned in the kind of Bible of California, utopian communities called California utopian communities by, by Robert Heinz, a group called Holy city who were really not in keeping with what we would want to, you know, they, they, their, their views on, on race and gender and society were not consistent with what, you know, an average sort of progressive thinking person who might be interested in studying utopian communities. It flies in the face of your, your kind of stereotypical idea of, Mm-hmm. The, the sort of the '60s communes that we immediately go to in our mind when we think of communal societies, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which in themselves were pretty fraught places. So um, it's 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 about complexity, not about um, nostalgia that, yeah. that we need to learn about these. But when we're visiting them, though, we also have to see you know their tourist sites are now structured for a couple of reasons. One of them is to kind of support what what our values are today. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you know shaker historic sites are beautiful places full of tidiness and order and amazing furniture that we can buy and then take into our homes. Um, but you know they they really downplay uh, the the kind of the fact that shakers saw the world's people as being fundamentally flawed and so most of us would not, we would be welcome to join a shaker community but we would not be welcome to just necessarily bring our views into it and bring mm-hmm. our own assumptions about about the world and society and economies into a shaker community and so it's really hard to you know to have a, a you know a governmentally based or an economically based like a commercially based visitable reconstruction of one of these communities and have it be like truly reflective of what the values of that community mm-hmm. were like it's i see it as this humongous irony that you can have your wedding at the oneida mansion yeah. house. <laughs> that, i do remember that in the book right and and it's i mean hilarious. The, the mansion house needs to support itself as, you know, as not not necessarily a business, but as an institution. And so you have to take these economic opportunities. And, you know, so bookings for events, probably, you know, go a long way to both popularize themselves, get more visitors, support Mm -hmm. themselves, maintain infrastructure and, and, you know, basic building maintenance. Um, But, you know, a, a traditional sort of two person marriage goes absolutely <laughs> counter to what that whole group was built on which was that you know the kind of John Humphrey Noyes complex marriage view where there there was no attachment to the material world and to each other and and you know individual possessions were were discouraged in mm-hmm. in sometimes kind of very extreme ways <laughs> and and individual friendships and attachments and pairings were were absolutely against community standards so It's you know it's a struggle to you know how much do you tell about a community or how much do you embody about a community when you're when you're building one of their sites it's it's a a a tough it's a tough balance and so visiting these sites you know go and look at them but also ask what what was the fundamental structuring principle Mm -hmm. what were they trying to achieve Mm -hmm. what were they trying to reject or critique about mainstream society Mm -hmm. Um, and then what is this site trying to tell us about us you know are, are, is it trying to kind of co-opt a society's you know beautiful aesthetic like with the shakers and bring it into American society mm-hmm. as part of our shared heritage? It is part of our shared heritage, but it's a lot more complex than just you know awesome peg rails. Yeah. Um, <laughs> some really great chairs. <laughs> yeah uh, yeah. Um, or is it trying to like if you're visiting uh, the Moravian vi- village of Old Salem, is a great historic site, um, but a lot of these these sites and, and, and the Shaker sites are, are um, this is in um, North Carolina, by the way, Old Salem, great historic site, really like it. It tends to uh, kind of glorify traditional life ways, a kind of, you know, small scale production, you know, craftsmanship, uh, agriculture, mm-hmm. a, a kind of an old timiness, which yeah. is, which is lovely, but that wasn't mm-hmm. special at the time. Everybody lived like that then, you know. Mm-hmm. Look, these people made their own pottery. Yeah, <laughs> so everybody did, had. To. <laughs> there was there was a lot available, yeah. you know, commercially, but there was also a lot of you know craftsmanship and 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 making these these folks and, and shaker sites do a good job actually of 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 casting them, you know, to some extent as as technologically advanced because they were yeah. because of the the kind of scale of their communities, they could start trying to develop and manufacture things in new ways um, that, that were technologically advanced. And it's, it's something that you see in, um, in the Hutterite communities that exist still mm-hmm. in the Northern plain states and provinces, that they, these, these people are not Luddites. They, because they have a shared economy, with a larger group of people than your average, you know, mm-hmm. family farm, they can afford some very modern uh, machinery and technology mm-hmm. to use in their agricultural production, which gives them an advantage over, you know, other neighboring farmers in some in some yeah. ways. And so, um, looking at how it's it's important to look at how these groups maybe embrace technology at the time that they were living mm-hmm. in, which now to us looks adorably old timey, yeah. um, but at the time was was very
4: futuristic, potentially yeah. futuristic yeah. Yeah.
3: Um, and and forward-looking and making advancements in in efficiencies and and you know the whole shaker broom thing was <laughs> they yeah. they they patented a great many different varieties of things um and so when we're visiting these sites that you know that might look charming and rural uh that's that's to our eyes now
4: oh the right futuristic on. i was remembering the um llana uh, de Rio? Mm-hmm. the alice what's her oh, last name um, The like the kitchen situation so the, you had like
3: belts, right? yeah
4: conveyor belt delivery yeah, of food on. to yeah, homes mm-hmm. yeah what she, like projected was going to be the thing and i'm like wait what year was this because they had like automobile roads that were extremely wide i think it was like 80 feet wide for the road Mm -hmm. and 100 feet wide and i'm like dear god what are they driving i'm like oh it's 1917 and her it's a projection of like what the future what they wanted it to look like
3: and her vision had this auto track surrounding the whole outside of the village too like that was it was really very futuristic and, you know, concrete houses, you know, these kind of architectural advancements that were supposed to liberate households from the drudgery of of domestic labor, you know, centralized cooking, mm-hmm. centralized laundry. So that, especially women, so that, you know, the people in the community, but in in her case, especially women, could be working on something else, you know, could be advancing artistic, scientific mm-hmm. um, trades, you know, they they were... Contributing the, to the community beyond just, mm-hmm. yeah, washing the dishes, and it was in, um, and and so it was interesting.
4: To, oh, sorry, it was interesting ahead. to see that contrast between their interpretation of what feminism could be <laughs> in the future and how that would have how they saw that playing out, being mm-hmm. bizarre conveyor belt food delivery systems and
3: automatic laundry, like <laughs> versus yeah. Yeah, it's it's obviously nobody <laughs> wants to cook. And so the, this is and, and you know, now it's it's so popular to have your own the you know, chef's scale, commercial grade kitchen in your own home, because it's become um, right. fashionable to be a gourmet chef because eh, it's because it's not the level of drudgery. We don't have to get up in the morning and, and yeah. start yeah. the fire in the woods. <laughs> well, and some of that, and, you know, some of that like
4: futurism was sort of realized in the fifties with the advent of the um, microwave microwave dinners. Oh yeah, like right. <laughs> so you have like yes. what now generations that don't know how to cook, and I think that's why like this whole you know like the ability to cook and even the back to land movements that popped up in the sixties, seventies, and eighties is, and continue. I think to some extent um with like the eco villages to be like these are skill sets that we should have in theory like we this is a lost part Mm -hmm. of our shared heritage as
1: so there's stuff we can definitely
3: learn from these
1: communities
3: well and i think i think that there's there's a a bit of a a challenge in in the idea between you know the kind of the back to the land self-sufficiency movement of now um versus yeah. what these communities were trying mm-hmm. to achieve. And in, in disconnecting cooking and laundry from the individual household, it assumes that you will stay connected to community and that you're necessarily self-reliant, that everybody has a skill and a talent and that you throw that yeah. into the community. Um, whereas the mm-hmm. kind of movements to reconnect people with the sources of their food now and to, to their own food production is, is much more an individualistic kind of mm-hmm. a um, yeah. a movement. So that you know, we all want to be self-sufficient and you know create all of our own household goods. And I'm not saying that that I want to do this. I'm just saying that this is kind of the, you know, the one of the ethics of this this movement, which which means that you don't have to rely on somebody else. in In a community, you have to mm-hmm. rely on other people to help you, and you can't be a bunch of you know individual libertarians producing all your own needs. Just happen. To be living <laughs> next door to each other, it requires everybody to throw in, and and by limiting certain people's skill sets, that ensures that everything gets covered, and also that everybody continues to meet yeah. each other. It's awesome.
0: Sure. Well, we have unfortunately run out of <laughs> I said I <laughs> went an election. <a> <laughs> no, <I don't>. no, <laughs> it's, it's really interesting. But if anyone has any really quick last minute thoughts, now's your chance, and otherwise. Stacey, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been fascinating.
3: Oh, it's been my pleasure to be here. Thanks yeah, for having uh, me. Yeah, your,
0: your book is incredible. I would um, strongly encourage anyone who's listening to go purchase a copy um, if you are interested in Can they make get a discount? Yeah. <laughs> um, the <laughs> <laughs> University Press of Florida has kindly provided us with a discount link that should be active for couple weeks um, after this episode airs so if you go to the women in archaeology blog you can find um, the discount link to purchase the archaeology of utopian and intentional communities as always we love hearing from our listeners so if you want to find us on twitter at womenarchies email us at women in archaeology at gmail.com we'd love to hear from you and thank you so much to everyone who was on the show tonight thank you